You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hi everyone, it's Paige Smathers. Thanks so much for being here. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at positive-nutrition.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever podcast app you use to listen to this podcast. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app. Search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Matters Podcast, and thanks so much for being here. My name is Paige Smathers, and I'm your host, and this I this podcast I'm sharing with you today is one that I am so very excited about. I spoke with Dr. Lilia Grau, and I know that I'm not saying her last name right because she told me it's a German name, but she also mentioned that she didn't even know how to say it in English. So anyway... Forgive me, Lily, for uh, saying your name wrong, but I'm speaking with Dr. Lilia Grau, who is a both a physician and a psychotherapist. She specializes in mindfulness, compassion, um, mindful eating, and she's also a certified body trust provider. She has 18 years of clinical experience and is intimately familiar with bodies and minds of our healing process, how we relate to, nourish, and take care of ourselves and our bodies in ways that bring us closer to wholeness, radical presence, fierce embodiment, and joy. Lilia practices at the intersection of different healing modalities, centering lived experience and the body as the source of knowing. Her own life experiences with developmental and complex trauma, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and a healing journey through psychotherapy and mind-body practices have shaped her approach. Her practice is trauma-informed and rooted in intersectional feminism. She's Mexican and provides services in both English and Spanish. Lilia loves working with providers, navigating the challenges of advocating bravely for body liberation, embodiment, and freedom from performative health, who wish to cultivate and honor boundaries that allow for their self-care and replenishing empathy and compassion. Lilia is an avid amateur cook, baker, and foodie. She and her partner share their home with their beloved cats, Thomas and Ziggy. So this podcast episode... It dives deep into some of the most, I think, critical and core conversations and topics within the realm of healing and and health and wellness and um, well-being. So in this podcast, we talk about holistic health. What does that word even mean? We also talk about uh, this idea of performative health, and we explore performative health as it's Um, differs from this idea of embodied well-being. And then we end our conversation talking a lot about the idea of joy and pleasure as it relates to our bodies and as it relates to how we care for ourselves. We highlight some really interesting research about embodiment by Neva Peron, and I will link to some of her work so that you can be, uh, you can click on it and um, learn more if you'd like to. So thank you so much for for being here, and I'm super excited to bring you this podcast episode 
with uh, Dr. Lilia. She is just fantastic and so wise. And I finished this, I finished recording this podcast just feeling so lifted up and so good. And I think you will too. So a couple quick words for those of you who might be new to the podcast. Um, if you'd like to join us over in our Facebook group, we have a Nutrition Matters podcast community on Facebook. Also, I'd love it if you followed me on Instagram or Facebook. My handle is at Paige Smathers RD. And um, I, I often have little uh, events or things going on that I inform my email subscribers about. So if you're interested in joining my email list, uh, just go to my website, positive-nutrition.com. And then scroll all the way to the bottom of the uh, homepage, and then there's a way to, a place to subscribe to the newsletter there at the bottom. And uh, yeah, once again, just just so happy to be able to share this conversation with you. Grateful for those of you who take the time to leave a review or to support the podcast in any way, whether that's just um, that's a donation or whether that's uh, reaching out and sending me a little message of encouragement that always is um, very, very much appreciated. So thank you to those of you who have done that type of thing in the past. I really, really appreciated. And um, I hope that you all enjoy this episode. And yeah, let's hear from Lilia. Hi, Lily. Welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast. Hi, Paige. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you for your time and for joining us uh, to talk about this really interesting and important topic. So before we dive into that, will you just take a minute and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Let them know who you are, where you are, what you do, how you got there a little bit, and then we'll dive into some specifics. Sure. So I'll, I'll share in very general terms, and then if you're sure. curious about something, you just let me know. So I'm Lily. I am a Mexican physician and psychotherapist, also body trust certified provider. And I really help people to cultivate compassionate self-care, particularly as it pertains to the field of eating and moving. And also, if we're navigating challenges related to different health conditions. So yeah, that's basically me. Okay, so you, we were talking a little bit before recording, but we were talking about how you are a physician and uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and you're in Mexico, and you're mentioning that the mind-body connection kind of compassionate approach to health is definitely rare in the, in the U.S., but, but maybe even more rare in Mexico. So talk about what maybe what brought you to that place personally and professionally? And then also, what is it like to be sort of like a lone ranger a little bit? Yeah. So this last bit about being a lone ranger was my experience definitely for most of my professional life. Happily, in the last few years, I've connected with amazing people who are doing this work of body liberation, both in Mexico and in other countries. And so it's not such a lone effort anymore. It's very much a community effort. And the way I came into this, I think it's the, at the intersection of my personal history and my professional training. So in my personal history, I struggled with a mood disorder for most of my life. And 
had experiences of developmental trauma that of course contributed to that. And when I was a teenager, my mom took me to a yoga class and I fell in love with the practice. At first, very begrudgingly, <laughs> it's just like my mom dragging me to yoga. And yeah, and you're a teenager, up. right? Yeah, like, uh. and, yeah <laughs> and my mom took me, so I'm not supposed to like it. Um, and then uh, a teacher of mine introduced me to the practice of transcendental meditation, and another teacher of mine introduced me to the Buddhist practice of Vipassana meditation, of insight meditation. And this happened right as I was coming into med school. So in Mexico, the, the whole training pathway is very different. We go to med school straight after high school, and it's a seven-year program, including uh, an internship, which in the U.S. would be actually the first year of residency. And so anyway, I came into med school already with a yoga and meditation practice, and I was always the weird one. And the other thing that made me the weird one is that my personal physician was not a Western physician. He was a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. And so I had this lens already coming into med school of a more holistic practice and of mind-body integration. And I think that that shifted the way I approached my studies and I came to practice medicine. And at the same time, I did my, my first clinical year, I did it at the Institute of Nutrition in Mexico. And I was exposed to people who were struggling with eating disorders, severe enough to be hospitalized. And also with a number of people who were struggling with their weight. And one of the early experiences that really shaped how I approached people struggling with weight was we were doing rounds and as many of you who have seen medical shows on tv know the rounds are so you have the attendings and then the residents and then the interns and then the students so i was like at the at the end of the line yeah <laughs> and so we were seeing this patient who had a thyroid cancer and so the attendings left the residents left the interns left and i was the last along, you know, walking behind them on my way to the door. And then she called me back and said, can I ask you something? And I was like, sure. And I was thinking <laughs> to myself, I probably won't have any answers to give you because I'm just a student, but yeah, go ahead and ask. And her question was, did this happen to me because I'm fat? And it broke my heart. And so I just sat down with her for quite a while and talk about her fears and how she had come to believe that this had happened to her because of her weight. And of course, the reason she came to believe that was because the medical establishment was telling her that. And so I thought it was very unfortunate. And that really changed my approach in terms of people who were struggling with their weight and with their eating. And at the same time, I'm a multi-passionate person, and I was doing research in behavioral pharmacology with an animal model in the lab regarding hunger and satiety. And so I was really fascinated at how living beings regulate their relationship with food and eating and nourishment. And so that kind of all came together. And I practiced... I would say in a more traditional 
way at an eating disorders clinic for many years. And in my private practice, I was doing um, medical family therapy. And then seven years ago, I injured my back. And in the process of healing, I had been very reluctant to introduce explicitly the practice of mindfulness and the practice of yoga into my clinical practice. I would share it with my patients if they asked or if I thought it could be useful, I offered it as a suggestion or an invitation. But I was very reluctant to talk about it because for me, it came from a spiritual practice and I did not want to impose my beliefs on anyone and I wanted to be very respectful of that. But seven years ago, a friend of mine invited me to this course and the approach was clearly not my cup of tea, but what it made me realize was that people were really ready and hungry for a more holistic approach to health and medicine and wellness. And so I thought, you know what, somebody else must have thought about this before me. And I am sure somebody has incorporated meditation and yoga into mainstream medical care. And so I went online and thank you, Google, I found the mindfulness based stress reduction model. And then I trained in that and I thought somebody must have applied it to food. And I found the Center for Mindful Eating. And so I trained in that. And then later I would serve on the board of the Center for Mindful Eating. And so now it is all integrated. And the more I come to practice, the more I believe it is important to show up transparently and authentically as human beings with all of our history and with all of our professional expertise. I think they're part of the same bundle. So you talked a lot about this word holistic and my opinion is that that word is so meaningful and can be such a beautiful word, but it, it can kind of get co-opted by, uh, I think just in my opinion, like people or, or, uh, models or treatment modalities that aren't really actually holistic. So do you want to just take a minute and talk about like, what do you view the word holistic to really mean? And how does that differ from how someone might say, yeah, I'm holistic and I'm telling you to go on this elimination diet just to find out what's happening uh, with your allergies or with your intolerances? Because I yeah. see a lot of that. I'm sure you do too. Oh, yes. Thank you for saying that. Yes, I believe the word holistic has been really co-opted by the new age um, movement that is very superficial in its approach in many ways. And for me, holistic means having a broad picture and understanding of what being a human being means. So it takes into account the mind dimension, the body dimension, which actually for me are inseparable. So the mind-body connection. And also spiritual component, our connection to earth, our connection in relationship to other human beings. And it also takes into account social and cultural discourses. So it's very much a critical perspective in terms of knowing that we are also a product of culture and society and that there is um, a dialogical relationship between that. So we don't exist in isolation from other human beings, from animals, from earth, from the culture and society. And all those elements shape us, and in exchange, we shape them. And so I believe that if, if we are to truly have a holistic approach to medicine or health or well-being, 
we need to take all of these spheres into account from the cellular level to the societal and earth level. I love that. That's, I just think that that's an important word to clarify just in the, in the world we live in, it can be kind of confusing because there's, there's words that are uh, really rich and meaningful and powerful, but then like you said, kind of get co-opted and become superficial and really lose a lot of that power and meaning. So and sometimes people can kind of have a negative opinion of the word holistic because of maybe some bad experiences they've had. So I think it's important to clarify what you mean. And yeah. I, loved, I loved that definition. That was great. Also from like a nutrition perspective, when I'm, when I'm working with my clients, I don't blast this all over my website because again, it's kind of a confusing word for people, but I, I tell them like, we've, we've got to look at you as a whole person Yes, it's going to be making, you know, some changes about behaviors with food or our approach to food. We've got to think about how those changes might affect your social life, your ability to have leisure time, your sleep, your stress levels, all of, all of these other aspects of, like you said, what it means to be a human are such important things to consider when talking about isolated things like nutrition or medicine or exercise or whatever it is, right? Yeah, and I think it's really important that he touch on this because I was also actually very reluctant to use the word holistic for a long time as I was to use the word eclectic <laughs> because in at least in my corner of the world, when you use the word holistic, it can be interpreted to mean that it's just an alternative approach to health that can be very limited in scope. So what you were saying, co-opting the word holistic to maybe just use a nice sounding word, quote unquote, to describe very healthist and very damaging. Exactly. Approaches. Yes. Yes. Well, good. Thanks for clarifying that. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of what we're doing when we talk about body liberation and intuitive eating and you know a compassionate approach to our health a lot of what we're trying to do is reclaim certain words mm -hmm. um, just to kind of say no, no no you're not allowed to to take that word away it's very meaningful or it's descriptive or it's helpful to me and i think i think holistic is something i'd love to see reclaimed because it is a really powerful word and it is a really powerful concept to approach people as people, whole people, systems, mm -hmm. many systems together, which create this organism called a human. We're not just circulatory and digestive and skeletal and we're, we're human beings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I thank you for sharing, you know, how you came to that place with, with practicing medicine. I'm really interested to know what is it like to be someone who maybe goes against the grain a little bit. How do you navigate that balance between having professional support and community, but also holding your ground as far as how you feel is right for you ethically and personally to practice? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I will say first that even as a little girl, I had this really strong rebellious oppositional <laughs> <laughs> aspect to me <laughs> and so which is helpful in some ways right <laughs> yeah it is and I I opposed 
things that don't make sense to me and that I, after reviewing critically, don't seem to need to be true. And so I suppose that eased a little bit of the experience of feeling like I was going against the green in many different ways. Um, from practicing medicine differently to practicing psychotherapy differently to now be fully embracing the body liberation movement and the health at every size movement, which is very opposed to the mainstream weight-centric model. And so, yeah, for, for all of the years where I felt very much alone in that realm, it was just me holding on to this. This is true for me and I can rebel and this is okay. And also, I think in my life, I was already used to the experience of being very different. I'm a very sensitive person. I identify as a highly sensitive person. And I always perceived the world differently from most of the people around me. And the way my mind works is not the way <laughs> the mind of most people work, I think. Um, I actually identify as being neurodiverse. And so, yeah, I, I think I was already pretty used to that in many different ways. And so it was- What does that word neurodiverse mean? Will you define that? Yeah. So originally, as I understand it, it comes from studies of people who were classified as being within the autistic spectrum. And so neurotypical people are people who have traditional ways of learning and relating and interpreting cues from other people in their environment. And they process what comes in through their senses in a particular way. And then people who identify as neurodiverse or who are labeled as neuroatypical or within the autistic spectrum really have a different way of processing cues from other people and from their environment. And the way the mind processes that and integrates sensory experiences is different. And so we have challenges that can manifest themselves socially, mainly, but also we can feel very overwhelmed by exposure to the world stimuli, if that makes sense. Yeah, thanks for defining that. So where were you? I feel like I kind of, <laughs> kind of interjected for a minute to ask That's you. okay, and thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, so, so in my life, my most familiar and consistent experience has been that of being different. And so in that sense, being professionally different wasn't rare were unique for me in that way. And so I think I was already equipped <laughs> with coping mechanisms to be the weird one. And at the same time, of course, it's a very lonely experience and it can feel very isolating and painful and it carries with it a lot of grief. And so it was such a relief for me to start connecting with people who have the same approach and who have the same truth and who are daring to do incredibly brave work in the world opposing the mainstream and opposing what is harmful about the current medical model and what is harmful about the weight-centered model 
and what is harmful of all of the discourses that go against bodies that are deemed as non-conforming to ideals, whether that be in terms of gender, of size, of physical or mental ability, and gender, yeah, I already mentioned gender, in any other way. So, so it's really refreshing and strengthening and nourishing and replenishing to be in community with others oh. who, like me, have had the experience of doing this work on their own and then coming to find like-minded people who are doing the work of culture making and culture changing. Right. That's so fascinating. So what I'm hearing is your kind of core, part of your core identity growing up was like recognizing, oh, I'm different. I, I don't conform in this or that way. And that just that become became sort of a part of how you saw yourself and then has extended into your professional approach. I mean, look at you, you're a physician, but also a marriage and family therapist, a trained psychotherapist, which, you know, who, who does that? I mean, that's such a cool bridge to build between those two worlds. It's just, that's, I'm just so in awe. And I can see that sort of part of your life that just said, Oh, you're different. You don't quite, fit in or you don't quite agree with this or that. Like, I think that that's probably been a big reason why you were able to say, sure, I can become a physician and a psychotherapist. Yeah, I, I can do this. That's just, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And I would like to say that I'm grateful for, well, I'm really grateful to one person. He was my therapist at the time when I was deciding whether to go into medical residency to do psychiatry, which was the traditional conventional expected thing that I would do. And I was top of my class in medical school and all of my teachers were outraged at the thought that I wouldn't pursue a residency and that I would pursue a different pathway instead. And my therapist was so incredibly supportive, as he was always, of me and my choices. And he really helped me to see what was the choice that came from my inner truth and that was aligned with my needs and my boundaries and the way that I am in the world. And that meant giving up the idea of conforming to this residency pathway and just choosing something that was going to be life-giving for me and that I was actually going to enjoy because it wasn't taking place within a system that is so exploitative and so draining of compassion, which is the whole medical residency pathway. Oh, well, what a, an amazing background you have. And um, did you grow up in Mexico? Yes, I did. I was born and raised in Mexico City. And with the exception of a few months doing externships here and there, I have never lived anywhere else. Okay. And so you practice in Mexico City? Yes. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for sharing all that about you. This is, I think it's really fun to hear people's stories, even if it's just kind of a brief overview, just in context of, of understanding how we'll dive into the topic for the day, but then also just, there's so much power in being able to tell your story and just being able to, I don't know, just and for the listeners to hear these narratives of like, oh, I don't quite feel like I fit in or I, I finally found this community and it's been so helpful for me, even though I intuitively have been, have kind of came to this place through my own 
route. I just think sometimes it's just nice for people to hear those narratives, you know? Thank you. And to know that it's possible to be a physician who, who <laughs> kind of says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in a way that, that feels right to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is true for, and I need to acknowledge, I was incredibly privileged. I had a lot of support. I had the financial means to choose what I wanted to do. And when I didn't, I had access to a job that allowed me to pay my way through my master's. And so, yeah, I was incredibly privileged and not a lot of people are that privileged, at least in the financial sense. And so that also played a part in me being able to choose this. And I want to name it because sometimes we fall into this pit where we are blaming people for not making the choices that feel right for them. When in reality, we are not building a society that really supports and facilitates those choices. Absolutely. Really good point. Yeah. And the other thing that I would like to say is you mentioned fitting in. And I, I keep thinking of this thing that Anita Johnston from Eating in the Light of the Moon mentioned in a podcast. I I listened to her in an interview and she was talking about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Oh, Brene Brown's definition? I don't know if it's been Brene Brown's definition. I It might be. And it's about, so fitting in is trying to conform to the way other people are to feel like you're part of a group. And true belonging means showing up fully as the person you are and then finding true connection. And being loved for that rather than trying to change who you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Such a difference, such a distinction between the two. Such a distinction. And I think that a lot of the things we do in our lives, and speaking for me, that is definitely true. I always yearned for the experience of fitting in. But what I really longed for was the experience of belonging. And I have found that in, in this community of body liberation, which is such an amazing thing. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's, I do think that that is Brene Brown's distinction, but who, it doesn't matter who said it. But yeah, I, I came across that in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. That was one of the things that stood out to me the very most, just that distinction of like, am I changing myself to try to fit in here? Or am I showing up as my authentic self and finding people in community who allows me to do that and loves me for that. It's such a different feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's really ultimately like what we all want is to show up as, as we are and to have people say like, we love you for it. You know, like we love you just as, as you are, no need to change. And that's so relevant in the conversations about bodies, about food, about self-care, about the medical field, all of it. Right. Absolutely. And It is especially important when we think about the diet mentality and ways to find liberation from that, to think that the diet mentality is trying to get us to conform and fit in, but it really is not offering true belonging, which is what we all yearn for. So, so true. That's such a good point. And, you know, that actually is maybe a good segue to talk about some of the terms we wanted to define and explore together today. Yes, please. We wanted to draw um, 
between these, these two terms and let's define them really quickly. So the first is performative health. And then we're also going to be talking about embodied well-being. So yeah. take a minute and talk about what performative health means. What does this look like? What are some examples? So performative health to me is anything we do to try to conform to a normative ideal of quote unquote health whether it be through physical char characteristics or through behaviors. So for example, a physical characteristic of the normative ideal of health would be a thin body, most usually a white body and a cisgender body. And so seeking to conform to that with the wish to fit in is performative health. And behaviors can be doing yoga not because it feels nourishing and life enhancing but because you're looking at all of these pictures of you're supposed to do yoga if you want to be healthy or you're supposed to eliminate certain foods from your diet or eat certain amounts of food if you want to be healthy and that is performative too and i think the crucial element about performative health is that it is externally imposed although of course it can be internalized to varying degrees and it is always rooted and comes from internalized sizeism, weightism, ableism, normative gender identities or expression. And of course, because there is not a single human being who is completely free from ideas about what health is supposed to look like mm. or feel like according to cultural perceptions or to the normative medical model in their community, we've all been successfully socialized into this culture. And so we all do performative health to a degree. And it's well, and really quickly, like, I yeah. think we run into problems when we, when we apply this like binary thinking where it's like, Oh, I learned about this term performative health. I shouldn't do it. Like don't. Yeah. And then, you know, then you can start to kind of apply that same kind of rigid diety mindset to avoiding or not doing that. And so I just think it's, it's, a, it's a careful kind of dance where it's like awareness and then also gentleness that, there, that this isn't about like completely eradicating something from your life. It's just an awareness to help. Ultimately, we're just trying to help you take action and behave and um, participate in your health in a way that feels nourishing. Yes, exactly. And so it's an ongoing liberation practice to come back to our bodies in present tense and connect to what is life-giving, life-enhancing, well-being promoting to each one of us at any given time, which means coming back to the practice of reattuning to our body's needs and boundaries moment by moment. And that is an ongoing practice. And you're so right about the fact that it's not an absolute thing. It's not an either or, or black or white. It's not, you either do performative health or you do something that is opposite to that because it's still being in reaction to that. And so we're trying to do this practice of coming back to the body and practice liberation and cultivate different ways of taking care of ourselves that are not necessarily defined by the external imposition of a standard. And it is really important to be patient and compassionate with the fact that, again, we all do performative health to a degree because we've all been socialized. And I keep going back to the internalized bias model. 
Verna Myers talks about how if you have a mind, you have internalized bias. If you were raised in society, you have internalized standards of what a body or health or beauty are supposed to look like. They're always there. We all have a reference. And so it's about being critical about that reference and cultivating the practice of attuning to our bodies at the same time as making visible these patterns of performative health. That was such a, that was, I couldn't have said that any better myself. I love that. When I think of this word performative, I kind of think of like a stage and like there's yes. an audience and um, you're, you're performing something that you've memorized, something that you've um, practiced and it's the culmination, kind of like the end product. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into this word, but this is, I, I can see that being problematic when it comes to our health because first of all it's a personal thing our our practices of you know meditation or movement or even eating like that's really intimate right so it's not necessarily to be put on display and have everyone see what you are or aren't doing um, but at the same time the the word performative to me sort of implies this idea of there's an end result where, you know, you get there and, and you, yeah. you're done where, where it's like, no, like, like that's something I constantly have to kind of talk with my clients about and work through with them is this isn't, this isn't something that you just arrive at and it becomes, you know, super easy and you never have to think about this stuff anymore. Like you're always going to be working on, like you said, kind of practicing coming back to your body, reattuning re kind of focusing on what you know helps you and and works for you in terms of how you care for yourself it's not this thing that you just arrive at one day and say okay i'm done it's continual it's continual work just like any relationship we have we have to continue to work at it yes and yes so much yes to all of that <laughs> one to the the stage metaphor is really useful for me because it means that we are using the word performing on a stage for others in a scenario where we're being judged about our choices. Oh, the judgment there. That's, I didn't even think of that part of it, but you're so right. Like, is she doing that right? Is she moving right? Is she, did she yeah. say her lane, her line just perfectly? Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. There is yeah. that element of judgment. There is that element of judgment of, oh, does this kind of movement count or doesn't it? Is this person doing things the right way or not? Are they attaining this standard, which you very well spoke about in terms of an end result, which is totally not what embodiment and I mean, embodied well-being is about. It's about a cultivation and a process. It's not about, oh, I got there and now everything is fine, because that would only work if human beings were static machines, which we're not. Yeah. Oh, this, I love that metaphor. I have not thought of that before, but this is, pow this is a really powerful thing. Do you think on a practical level, people could ask themselves, all right, am I, am I doing this for approval? Like, like that idea of fitting in, right? Am mm -hmm. I doing this to fit in? Am I doing this because it's authentically me? Um, am I doing this to perform? Am I doing this to practice? Maybe are those some good questions? maybe people could ask to sort of assess where they are with this? Yes, those, all of those are really good questions. Additional questions that I really like are, 
what is the most kind choice for my body at this moment? Thinking of what I want to cultivate in terms of my well-being and also thinking in terms of what is important to me? What do I feel I want to do in this world? And what are my values? And so what choices are aligned with those values? And so if a value of mine is generosity, for example, I want to be giving, I need to be giving to myself also. And so not restrict out of judgment or out of wanting to please those imaginary spectators, which are sometimes not as imaginary. Yes, very true. <laughs> Maybe they're very real. Yeah, maybe they're very real. And so where is my intention and what are my reasons for choosing this? Yes, intentions um, are are such a big deal. When we get into the into the habit of of only looking at our behaviors what we are or aren't doing, we can really lose sight of what it's all about, which is why are you why are you doing this and why or why aren't you doing this? And two people can be doing the exact same behavior. Yes. One out of a very gentle, loving place, another out of a very um, restrictive or and or punishing or punitive place, right? Yes. And so the, 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 the behavior that or the choice that comes from a loving and attuned, caring place can look the exact same way to the outside world, but it is not experienced in the same way. And so when it is experienced from that loving place and from, or some people find the, the whole love concept very inaccessible. And so point. I, I want to retrace and say, when it comes from a place of respect and of cultivating a trusting relationship with yourself and your body, the experience in the body-mind is an experience of relaxation and connection and nourishment. And when it comes from a punitive place, from a performative place, from an externally imposed thing that you have to do to either look a certain way or to be judged as worthy because you are pursuing the healthiest ideal, the body-mind experiences that as a threat and a stress. And so the end result is anything but health. Okay, so <clears throat> so beautifully said. Thank you so much. Let's talk about this term embodiment or embodied well-being. I, I hear people throwing that word around. Um, I've never actually heard someone define it. I've thought about what it might mean to me. And so I'm really interested to hear kind of what, how do you define that term? What does that look like? Maybe you've already alluded to it just a bit, but let's kind of uh, explore that together and kind of talk about what this idea of embodied well-being might look like on a practical level. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I want to acknowledge authors and traditions that have shaped my understanding of embodiment. So the definition of embodiment as we know it in the 21st century traces back to Merleau-Ponty, who was a French philosopher. And it refers to the lived experience of engagement of our body in the world. And so Merleau-Ponty thought that mind and body were inseparable, as do I. And he placed the body as the center of both perception and subjectivity, the way we experience the world meaningfully. 
And there is always a relationship back and forth between body and culture, so that through our active engagement with the world, our body performs and enacts cultural norms and practices, but can also alter cultural practices. So the way we inhabit or are in our bodies shapes culture too. And so the, the embodiment term refers at the same time to all of the scope of our lived experiences as we engage with the body and the world, and also to the shaping of these experiences by cultural forces. Which brings me back to this notion of holistic as encompassing both our mind, body, and spiritual aspect, but also our relationship with earth and with society and culture. And there is a researcher who has done, in my view, an exceptional thing in terms of defining women's experience of embodiment. This researcher's name is Neva Piran. She has a book called Journeys of Embodiment, and it is based on detailed interviews with women from the ages of girlhood to through all the adult years. And Neva Piran developed a critical theory of embodiment, which is at the intersection of psychology and sociology, so that we can deepen our understanding of the social processes that create um, bodies that are accessing or barred from agency and from equitable participation in the public, specifically feminine bodies. And she has clustered the range of experiences included in the experience of embodiment into five dimensions. And these five dimensions are along a continuum from positive to negative and everything in between. So again, it is not a black or white thing. And it's not a thing of you are either embodied or you're not. We're all embodied. We all have an experience of being engaged in our bodies in the world. And so these dimensions that Neva Piran has built are one, body connection and comfort, two, agency and functionality, three, experience and expression of desire, four, attuned self-care, and five, inhabiting the body as a subjective site, resisting objectification. And so again, we have a spectrum from positive to negative. On the end of the positive embodiment experience, there is positive body connection and comfort, embodied agency and passion, attuned self-care, and inhabiting the body as a subjective side. The body is I. I do things in my body, with my body, for my body. And the negative embodiment experience, which Niva Puran uses the metaphor of corseting for, is disrupted body connection and discomfort, restricted agency and restraint, disrupted connection to desire, self-neglect and harm, and inhabiting the body as an objectified site, which means doing things to the body. And so my concept of embodied well-being is aligned with a positive experience of embodiment. And when we are trapped fully in the performative health world, we tend to be in the negative embodiment side of things. I was Googling Neva Piran. Um, she's come up before on the podcast. I, Wonderful. Yeah. So I'm going to link to her Amazon page so that people can explore her books. Um, yes. I, I spoke 
with about the topic of prevention of eating disorders and her work came up in that in context of prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're, you're also mentioning the one about the course that I see that one on, on the cover about journeys of embodiment at the intersection of body and culture. Yes. Sounds fascinating. Is that a textbook? It is a textbook. Okay. Cause um, I'm like, it costs 60 bucks. So I'm assuming that's like a textbook <laughs> rather than. Like it a is a textbook book. and it is very much described in the qualitative research tradition. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I honestly don't know if lay people will find it as fascinating as There is also, for the health providers listening to us, there are also a couple of research papers published by her and her team, Okay, which I'll I can link, link to. Yeah, in will you? Let's do that. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Absolutely. Well, yeah. so, oh, wow, that exploration of embodiment was really powerful. What What stands out to you as things that, kind of the everyday average listener could start to think about, start to explore, you know, in their own like mindfulness practice or even just in their day-to-day behaviors. What are some things like kind of bringing the theory down to the practical level, the down to earth? What are some things that come to mind for you? So the thing that is foremost in my mind right now and in my body too, when, when I was hearing you talk about that is the connection to joy and the connection to pleasure. And particularly for women, that is a very fraught relationship. Also for people who identify as non-binary gender. Um, I think for cis men, the connection to desire and joy and pleasure is more straightforward. And this is a generalization. I acknowledge that for many of them, it is not this way. But for me, Choices that nourish the joy and connection and pleasure in our everyday life bring us closer to embodied well-being. So whether that be stop for a minute and look at the greenery in your walk towards your office, or if you're doing the dishes, stop for a minute and just feel the water and soap in your hands and connect to the senses. And I think a practice that is an everyday thing for me is pausing, noticing what's here for me in terms of physical sensations, the, the, my body's experience, the experience of inhabiting my body right now, what is here for me in terms of thoughts and feelings. And just asking the question, what do I need right now? And if what do I need right now is not accessible, sometimes it helps to think, what would bring me joy today? What intention is aligned to what's important for me in life? And then from there, it becomes easier to see what behaviors are within our reach to cultivate this embodied well-being. So one would be, let's see, it's important for me to have energy in my day to be there for my partner. What will allow me to have energy in my day for my partner? And the answer to me might be rest. It might be stretching. It might be a mindfulness pause or a self-compassion pause. It might be a certain kind of food or a certain way of eating. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm choosing 
something different to eat, but that I'm pausing to really chew and savor and allow my body to activate digestion response instead of just brushing through it. And for each one of us, different choices are accessible. And I think it's important for me to name along with this two things. One of them I already did, which is acknowledging that each one of us has different identities at intersection. And those identities have a greater or lesser degree of privilege in terms of our social context. And that will always shape what choices are accessible to us. And if we are not able to access our first choice, it's not necessarily that the deficiency lies within us, but that society is not, our social context is not contributing to us having that choice. And the second thing I would like to name is that all of us have experienced greater or lesser experiences of trauma and abuse, speaking specifically about people who are interested in nutrition aspects. For people living in larger bodies, living in a larger body in our society and being subjected to stigma and discrimination is trauma too. And trauma experiences have the effect of disconnecting us and detaching us from our bodies and of leading to a negative experience of embodiment. So they disrupt our connection to our body. They restrict our agency. They disrupt or even cut off our connection to desire and pleasure and joy. And they lead to behaviors that can be labeled self-neglect or self-harm, but that are in essence coping mechanisms that have allowed us to survive. So I want to be very careful when I'm sharing these examples because I don't want people to feel like they're doing it wrong if they're not able to access these choices. Again, it's a practice. And if we have had experiences of trauma, we need someone to support us through the process. That is so well said and such an important two caveats to give there. Um, <clears throat> so I'm wondering if the term embodiment or the word embodiment can fit in with kind of how I'm, how I'm envisioning it. And if it's wrong, if it's not, if it's off, just let me know. But so I always like to think about how, when I'm in a session with a client, I'm trying to figure out what's important to them, what matters to them, what they value, and then kind of what is currently going on with with behaviors, with their approach to to eating, especially since it's nutrition, and kind of how can I help them bridge that gap a little bit? And this term of of embodiment kind of makes me think of it's one thing to value, like you were saying, generosity. It's another to to really practice. Uh, embodying that term where you're actually using your body to practice that for mm -hmm. others for yourself so it's to me it seems like it's taking it to a to the dimension from the intellectualizing which i think is an important thing but also into the actual like action doing behaviors is that is that an element to this or am i thinking of a different term i do think it's an element of this because you're you're bridging that connection to the person's needs and our needs are rooted in our bodily experience. And so I would say, for me, it is a spectrum. 
from detachment and being just walking heads in the world and being trapped in this very intellectual dimension from which we make all choices. And then going from that to slowly connecting with our sensations in the body, which is the most, um, the most primal way we can perceive embodiment, I would say, just the sensations. And then to, from sensing the body to really inhabiting the body and making choices and acting behaviors that are rooted in the body. And so again, the body is I. It's not, it's very difficult when we are using words to describe it because yeah. in using language, we necessarily separate. We're talking as the body as an entity. Mm -hmm. When I am in my body, I am my body, my body is me. And right. so, but language doesn't even allow to explain that. And That's such a good point. You kind of miss meaning by trying to give it. Yes. And so it. when we just want to have a conversation about it, we will necessarily have a degree of detachment and a degree of disembodiment because we're just talking about it or thinking about it. And so for me, it is a crucial part when we're talking about embodiment and working with embodiment to incorporate into an everyday practice, body-mind practices, whether that be yoga, tai chi, uh, qigong, mindfulness, martial arts, somatic movement, and even culturally rooted and appropriate practices. So for instance, in Mexico, we have shamanic practices and traditional medicine that can involve rituals and going to the sweat lodge and those practices bring us back to the experience and connection with our bodies, which we can never achieve through conversation. So true. So I want to circle back to one of the things you said in, our, in the beginning part of us talking about this whole embodied well-being conversation. You were saying that one of the things that comes up for you right away is to experience and welcome and even seek joy and pleasure. And then mm -hmm. you also said that women tend, like, and obviously generalization here, but women um, or, and or people who are non-gender binary maybe uh, are particularly kind of socialized to not necessarily have this very clear-cut path of what that even means or looks like. And it can be kind of hard to tap into that. I wanted to just take a minute to explore that a little bit. Why do you think it's hard um, to allow yourself or even think about the idea of pleasure and joy in certain, in cert from certain backgrounds? So I will speak in very broad terms because this conversation could take days. <laughs> but, I recognize that. I asked big questions. So just <laughs> But okay, so I will I will begin by saying that as women, we tend to be socialized as objects, number one, and two, as beings whose mere existence is for the benefit of others. So we are socialized as caretakers of everybody but ourselves. And pleasure, particularly in the realms of erotic or sensual pleasure, 
is almost seen as evil in many different traditions and from many different perspectives. So for some, it can come from religion. For others, it can simply come from patriarchal culture. And when I referred to the fact that people who are gender nonconforming or non-binary, I think that because we have such limited standards of what bodies are supposed to look like and what bodies are supposed to conform to, there are certain bodies in terms of gender that have more pressure to conform to external ideals and which are more often subjected to trauma and abuse. And because both trying to conform to the externally imposed ideal and experiences of trauma and abuse disconnect us from our bodies, pleasure becomes a threatening thing, pleasure becomes a forbidden thing, and we simply disconnect from joy. And so they're not as readily accessible to us, and we have to actively pursue them. And as health providers, I think it is a responsibility to know that pleasure is an essential component of healing. And some, not something to be afraid of. <clears throat> In context of food, a lot of my clients are scared of the pleasure that they receive from eating something delicious. And a lot of people will say, well, if, I'm, if I feel so chaotic and out of control with food when I'm not really experiencing the taste and the pleasure, what's going to happen when I allow myself to really delight in this in this food that I'm eating and I just think we've got it all wrong I think pleasure is such a powerful tool to be able to know what your needs are um, in terms of when to eat in terms of when to stop in terms of like so many aspects of how we feed ourselves and then more broadly how we care for ourselves I think pleasure is not something to be scared of it's actually something totally to lean into and to explore Yes. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge, how could it not be scary when we've been raised into a society that values the dieting mind? And so if, we, if we've been told once and again that pleasure is dangerous, it is bad, it is a guilt-inducing thing, how could we not be afraid of pleasure? And if, we've, and if our bodies have been subjected to trauma, particularly sexual trauma, where pleasure is equivalent to danger, how can we not have a fraught relationship to it? And so it is all just part of the process. And for me, that fear is welcome. And we don't need to reject it or deny it in the process of reacquainting us ourselves a re, yeah, reacquainting ourselves with pleasure little by little as it starts to feel safe and as it starts to feel like something we can trust. I like that. Little by little. It doesn't need to be jumping right in. Yeah. And maybe in different realms of life. Like maybe it's easier to explore pleasure with food versus, you know, like sexuality. And maybe it's easier to explore pleasure with a beautiful sight outside in nature versus food or something like that, right? Yeah, for each person, it will be different. Sometimes pleasure is simply about touching something soft with our hands. Yeah. 
I, I immediately thought of myself stroking my, my cat's belly. Mm, the softest part, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a real source of joy and pleasure for me. And I will say that at a time in my life where I did not feel worthy of pleasure or joy, the only pleasurable experience I had on a daily basis was stroking my cat. One more thing I wanted to explore within this topic of, of pleasure is I think, I think it's maybe safe to generalize that a lot of women might, might struggle with feeling like it's selfish to explore this or to yeah. think in this way. So do you want to just hit on that really quickly? Yeah. Uh, again, of course, <laughs> we feel like it's selfish. And also, I want to name that the connotation we have with being selfish is a negative one. We are taught that we need to put everybody else's needs before our own and everybody else's pleasure before our own. And so it's a bad thing to focus on us. And I just want to say that when we try to practice something, but it does not include us, it is not complete. And... In order to give, we need to first sustain ourselves and nourish our own needs. And I know that that is a very easy thing to say in terms of just words or maybe even easy to understand intellectually, yeah. but it takes a lot to really work through that social conditioning in a patriarchal culture that has blocked our agency and our access to self-nourishment and self-fulfillment and joy and pleasure. That's it so takes good. a lot of unlearning and deconditioning. I think that's what a lot of this is, right? It's, it's not necessarily learning something new. It's kind of unlearning a lot of what we've been taught our whole lives. Oh, yes. I, I just look at little kids and they love themselves in the mirror and they love food and they love back scratches and they, I mean, they just, they love, puppies and you know they're just they're full of joy and pleasure that that is their life you know yeah and, they have this unbridled <laughs> uh joie de vivre it they just yeah it's this unbridled joy and curiosity and totally. passion and delight and 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 they're so good at just being in the moment in the present moment yes i'm always amazed by that yes so now that you mentioned children, I, I do want to say that I think we are doing a lot of this unlearning, not just for us, but for future generations too. Because if we don't heal ourselves, somebody else will have that work. We will leave a legacy of this same conditioning and corseting and forbidding and trauma for the next generations. That is such a good point. And I, I often say this about, about um, bodies where, you know, we parents these days pretty much are on board with the idea of like body shaming our kids is not probably a, a good idea. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think we need to take it a step further. I think we need to be positive about bodies, period. Um, other people's bodies, other people's size and um, background, ethnicity sexuality like if if our kids know that they'll be loved and they will belong kind of coming back to what we talked about in the beginning they know that 
they'll be loved and they belong no matter what happens Mm -hmm. with any of that stuff. I think we're, we're going to really shift our culture and our world for the better because so much of our dysfunction around food and, and self care. um, And you can speak to the other aspects, but so much of that dysfunction is rooted in, Oh no, if, if I don't do these behaviors, people won't love me. I won't fit in. I won't be worthy. I won't belong. What if that was never a problem in the first place? Right. Right. And in order to be that loving and secure and trusting presence for a child, the adult has had to do the work themselves. Absolutely. Like if, we, if I don't have the capacity to be with my own discomfort, to see my own biases, to name my privilege and to acknowledge trauma and grief, and if I don't do all of that work, then I won't be able to, to offer that presence to anybody else. And that's coming back to my question, is this selfish, right? Right. Absolutely not. Because if, if we want to be a force for good, whether it's with our community or with our kids or with um, our nieces and nephews or whoever's are in our life, like if we want to do that, we've got to take the time to do this for ourselves first so that we have something to give. Yes, and I really want to state very clearly that this is not a promise to a discomfort-free life or to <laughs> a life free from illness or suffering. We, when we're talking about health and this normative health ideal and health as an outcome and as something to achieve, we're kind of being in denial about the truth about the human existence. Being a human being in a human body means we will experience discomfort and pain and illness. It comes with having a body. And so I just want to say that we have access to embodied well-being in the presence of a number of conditions that can affect our health in the presence of pain and it comes as a given in the presence of discomfort. This work is really not a comfortable thing to do, nor should it be. Thank you for saying that. Uh, Because we can run into real problems if it feels like a promise or a guarantee of a suffering-free life or of a sadness-free life, right? Yeah. Ooh, this has been such an amazing conversation. I've loved every single second of this. Thank you so much for talking with me today. This was awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Paige. I loved our conversation too. Yeah, before we go, let's just take a minute and tell people how they can get a hold of you. I know I have um, some listeners in Mexico, maybe local to you, I'm not sure, but do you have a website? Do you have places where people can follow you online? Anything like that? Absolutely. So I will say that although I am located in Mexico City and my medical and psychotherapy services can only be provided to people in Mexican territory, I do offer online coaching services to people all over the world. And so they can find me on fiercelyembodied.com. That is where my English website is. And 
they for people interested in mindful eating and related topics they can find me also at mindfuleatingmexico.com okay great i will link to those and then will you send me some of the other resources we talked about especially neva peron's uh, some of her work like the articles you were talking about i will absolutely do so okay well this was a true joy and a true pleasure just to kind of go with the theme <laughs> of what we talked about during the episode i just i just soaked in every single word you said so thank you so much for your time today and sharing your wisdom and all of your years and years of training and personal work in these areas i just i loved it thank you so much thank you so much paige and thank you to all of our listeners Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you soon for another episode.